0: and welcome to relevant history i'm dan toller just a quick bit of housekeeping you've probably noticed that there has been more time between the most recent few episodes that is not intentional but it's a result of two factors first these more recent episodes require a lot more research Back in the first episode, for example, uh, when I was talking about the siege of Masada, I was able to get about 90% of my information from Josephus because he's the guy who wrote about it, and besides archaeological evidence, pretty much everything else uh, about uh, the events in that story come to us from Josephus, and that's how ancient history is. You have one source, maybe two, and if you're insanely lucky, you have three or four sources. And you have to put the rest together by drawing on archaeological information and some educated guesswork. But as we get into more recent history, there are way more sources. For this episode, I'm working from ten full-length history books... Uh, ...plus shorter sections of other works. It takes longer to go through the different accounts and form a complete picture of what's going on. And the second reason the pace has slowed a bit is that I've been putting a lot of work in on the Patreon side of things. For those of you who don't know, I have a Patreon channel, link in the description... And I do a monthly video series called Dan's War College for subscribers for $5 per month. But this is a one-man operation. At this point, the Patreon channel basically covers the cost of hosting and the occasional piece of recording equipment. I'm certainly not making enough to hire a video editor, which means I'm doing all of the editing myself, and as the editing has gotten more complex, it has taken time away from working on the Relevant History podcast. Hopefully we will find a better balance soon, but that's what's going on. And on an unrelated note, while I am an American, I have many British listeners My condolences on the passing of Queen Elizabeth, which is indeed a historically relevant event. She was one of the world's truly great leaders, and she served for 73 years with an honor and dignity that's becoming less and less common in today's world. She's the only British monarch I've ever known— Hell, she's the only British monarch my parents have ever known. I think my dad was two years old when she was, uh, when, when her coronation took place. She represented national unity, which is something that can sometimes be hard to find in a democracy. And I think that's something my British friends have that my American friends don't. And it's one reason why we Yankees can seem oddly obsessed with the British royal family. With Elizabeth II's passing comes the end of an era and the beginning of the reign of King Charles III. And while the Queen's shoes may be impossible to fill, Charles has decades of experience, and I'm confident he won't let the British people down. God save the King. Anyway... Today's episode is part two of a multi-part series on the Seven Years' War. In World War Zero, part one, we talked about the outbreak of fighting between the French and British empires in 1754, and how a local North American conflict turned into an all-out war between the French and British empires throughout the globe. In the 1750s, the world is more connected than it used to be. You look back at ancient or even medieval history, and wars, even the big ones, tend to be localized. Right? If the Romans are fighting the Parthians, the ancient Chinese don't care. They probably don't even know about it. Empires rise and fall in medieval India, and the Mesoamericans remain blissfully unaware. But in an interconnected world, wars tend not to remain isolated. You tug on one thread in the web of alliances, and sooner or later everybody is fighting. At least, that would be the case until 1945 and the invention of the nuclear bomb, which changed the calculus so that nowadays countries do everything they can to avoid a world war. Well, in 1756, there is no mutually assured destruction. There's no sword of Damocles hanging over world leaders, forcing them to be responsible. If anything, the outbreak of war between Britain and France causes other world leaders to throw fuel on the fire. And France and Britain aren't just fighting in the colonies. In June of 1756, France takes the Mediterranean island of Menorca from the British, and the British fleet is blockading the French coast. The war is in Europe now, and this turns up the pressure on a European political situation that is already on the brink of deteriorating into war. As you may recall, Archduchess Maria Theresa of Austria and Russian Empress Elizabeth Petrovna have already been making up plans for an invasion of Prussia. Prussian King Frederick II, now known as Frederick the Great, had taken some Central European land from Austria a few years back, and Maria Theresa wants that back. And Elizabeth Petrovna is strongly anti-Prussian. This is partly because she has territorial designs for Russia in Eastern Europe and a powerful Prussia would get in the way. But it's also for personal reasons. She can't stand Frederick or the Prussians in general, and she wants to see him put down. And seeing as Frederick once publicly called her a whore, the dislike is somewhat understandable. Maria Theresa and Elizabeth have also been talking to King Augustus III of Poland and Saxony, whose lands border Frederick's to the east and southwest. Augustus agrees to help, And a three-on-one attack against Prussia is planned for 1757. And in 1756, the Russians and the Austrians and the Polish and Saxons start building up supply depots and army facilities on the Prussian frontier. Now... If you have ever played a game like Civilization or Europa Universalis, you know what it's like when the other players start massing their troops along your borders. It's not hard to figure out what's going on, and you'll start engaging in furious diplomacy. Frederick does this, and straight up asks Maria Theresa what her troops are up to, and her answers are unsatisfactory. She basically tells him that her troops are on routine patrols, which is an excuse as old as war itself. And make no mistake, Frederick is aware of the geopolitical situation. France, which is Austria's ally, is already at war with Britain, which is Frederick's ally. And he doesn't know if he can count on British support in the event of an invasion because the British are already busy with the French. So, he decides to launch a preemptive attack of his own. But which way to attack? Remember, he has three enemies. Well, the Russians are out. Even if he had the logistics to support his army on the long march to Moscow... Attacking Russia would put his army far afield. His homeland would be hopelessly vulnerable to the Austrians and Polish. Attacking Austria first would make sense. Maria Theresa is the driving force behind this planned invasion of Prussia, and if she's defeated, Frederick can easily make peace with Elizabeth Petrovna and Augustus III. But the last time Frederick attacked Austria he ended up in a multi-year war. The Habsburg Empire is powerful and wealthy, and you can't just throw a quick punch and knock them down. And while his armies are tied up in Austria, Frederick will be vulnerable to Russian and Polish attack. So instead, Frederick the Great decides to launch an attack against the weakest of his three enemies— King Augustus III of Poland. And Frederick isn't just going to attack Poland. See, Poland is a trap a lot like Russia. In the mid-1700s, it's like a miniature version of Russia. It's a lot of wide, open land with a mostly agrarian economy, and you can fight into Poland for weeks And the Polish can just keep retreating and letting you extend your supply lines until they counterattack your now poorly supplied army. Besides which, invading east into Poland would put Frederick's armies way out of position to defend against the expected Austrian invasion into Silesia from the south. And from there, the Austrian army could move north into Frederick's most populous, prosperous territory, the Margravate of Brandenburg, and even threaten Berlin itself. So an invasion of Poland is out. It's not going to happen. But Augustus III, king of Poland, has an Achilles heel. His main power base is actually the electorate of Saxony a small but prosperous and densely populated territory, Saxony is located to the southwest of Prussia. Southwest of Brandenburg, really, but southwest of Frederick's lands. So he plans a lightning invasion of Saxony to knock the Polish out of the war. He hopes that then he will be able to win British support and fight off the Austrians and the Russians. Now, Frederick's entire military philosophy relies on rapidity of action. The French and Austrian field manuals of the time put a lot of emphasis on organization. But Frederick writes his own military manual, and he puts a ton of emphasis on logistics. He's interested in making sure his army is always well-supplied and on the move— and that they don't get bogged down in one place for lack of supplies. But the local tactical-level mobility that uh, Frederick is also going to rely on, well, that relies on infantry drill, which is something that the Prussians become famous for. When we picture armies from the 1700s We typically picture soldiers marching in lockstep, with drummers and pipers playing a tune to keep time. But, in fact, nobody was doing this until the 1730s, when Frederick the Great's father, Frederick Wilhelm I, introduced the practice. The idea was that soldiers could maintain a more cohesive formation by marching in time. And marching in time is also less exhausting when you're walking long distances than it is to try and maintain a formation without any rhythm. And believe it or not, this Prussian army is the first European army to march in cadence since the fall of the Roman Empire. And this Might sound silly, but this cadenced marching gives Frederick's troops more maneuverability on the battlefield. The armies he's facing are tougher to maneuver, and big infantry regiments, 2,000 or 3,000 men strong, have to move as an entire unit, which makes them sluggish and unwieldy. Frederick's Prussian armies, on the other hand, they deploy by the battalion, or a little over 600 men at full strength. These smaller units can engage in more complex maneuvers and still form a larger line of battle when they need to. And not only are they more maneuverable than the armies they're facing, but these Prussian armies appear disorganized to opposing generals. In the opening phase of the war, no one has seen anyone fight the way the Prussians are fighting. These smaller units moving around the battlefield, they just look like a larger unit that has no discipline. Right. It's like when Muhammad Ali first stepped into the ring. No one had ever seen a heavyweight fighter who was also quick and graceful. Right. He beat guys like George Foreman, who were much stronger than he was, but couldn't keep up with his speed. That's what Frederick is doing, and he isn't just taking this approach because he wants to have the best army. Speed is also an equalizer. It's the essence of the Prussian war plan. Prussia is smaller than either Austria or Russia. While it's densely populated and prosperous for its size, it is still a C tier economic power at best. In a long drawn-out war, Prussia will be reliant on British subsidies, which are by no means guaranteed. Frederick also has to rely on a large number of mercenaries, which can get expensive in a hurry. And Oh yes, all of his enemies have more manpower than he does. Well, now he is going to put his army's new training to the test. Prior to his invasion of Saxony, Frederick posts a force of a little under 30,000 men in Prussia proper to deter any attacks from Russia. And he also posts an additional 25,000 or so men in Silesia to block any attacks from Hungary or from Austria proper. And then he takes the rest of his army, over 60,000 men, on an invasion into Saxony. And this is a ton of geography here, so I've put a link to a map in the episode description which shows the political boundaries in Europe in the 1750s, and that should help you get your bearings. The initial blitzkrieg into Saxony is a huge success. The Saxon army is taken completely unawares and falls back to the fortress of Pirna virtually without a fight. But Frederick has miscalculated he expected that the Austrians would not be able to launch any kind of response until a year later in 1757. Instead, it seems that the Austrians are better prepared than he had thought. His scouts already report an Austrian force just across the Bohemian frontier. Not wanting to deal with this force and the Saxons simultaneously, Frederick leaves a little over half his army in Saxony, keeping the Saxon army bottled up in Pirna for now, and he crosses into Bohemia to deal with this Austrian army. And on September 30th, 1756, they run into an Austrian army at the town of Lobositz. It's a foggy morning in hilly terrain, and Frederick believes his 28,000 men are about to attack an Austrian rearguard of around 9,000 men. But what he doesn't know is that the Austrian force actually measures around 34,000, and not only do the Austrians outnumber the Prussians, but they also have some solid officers, including their overall commander, Field Marshal Maximilian von Braun an Irish-Catholic émigré who has spent his entire life in military service. But while the Austrians have a numerical advantage and decent officers, their troops are to the same quality. Many of them are conscripts, and even the volunteers haven't been drilled as thoroughly as the Prussian soldiers. Anyway... Brown's army is trying to relieve the Saxons at Pirna, maybe even link up with them and launch an immediate counter-offensive. Brown is not here to fight Frederick in the field in Bohemia, but he is more than happy to do so, and he has chosen the ground at Lobositz precisely for this purpose. And the terrain here is what saves the day for the Austrians. See, Lobositz is in a valley. And the terrain is hilly in some areas and marshy in others. So, the Prussians are going to have to come through the gap between two hills and work their way around small ponds and pools to get to the Austrians. And Brown has set up a series of skirmisher lines through this terrain to harass the incoming Prussians. Behind this, there are 12-pounder artillery positioned around the town in front to greet the Prussians when they get there. Slightly to the south, to the right from the Prussian perspective... The only major elevated position near town is a tall conical hill where the Austrian flank is anchored. And here Brown puts some of his best troops. These are volunteer Croats who won't break and run like the Austrian conscripts. Frederick is aggressive, and his doctrine is aggressive, and he falls right into Brown's trap. As his infantry work their way through the foggy patchwork of pools and meadows, they're under constant fire from brown skirmishers. And when they get closer to the town, they come under sudden and unexpected cannon fire from the 12-pounders. Survivors report cannonballs plowing through columns of men, sending them flying through the air. They talk about getting splattered with the brains of their fellow soldiers. But the Prussian artillery comes in behind the infantry and opens fire on the Austrians in return. Yet the Austrians don't break, and this is Frederick's first indication that he is not facing a small outnumbered rearguard. So, to test Brown, he sends forward a huge cavalry charge of 7,200 cuirassiers. And they deploy in textbook fashion, with the infantry parting ways to let them filter through, just like everyone has trained for. But the Austrian cavalry, which was out of sight... Well, they show up and countercharge the Prussians and drive them back. And in the process of this attack, uh, the Prussian cavalry has already come under heavy musket fire and taken some casualties and seen that the Austrian defenses are much stronger than they had expected. And At this point, the prudent thing for the cavalry to do would be to withdraw and maybe try to get around the Austrian flank. But Frederick's aggressive doctrine says that if your cavalry charge fails, you immediately launch another one without waiting for orders. And that's exactly what his cavalry commander does. In his book, Frederick the Great, A Military History, American historian Dennis Showalter writes, The Austrian infantry in the path of the charge got out of the way before being overridden. Within minutes, the Prussians came to a standstill in a network of ditches and swamps swept from end to end by Austrian fire. Horses, weakened from the unaccustomed rigors of field operations and an equally unaccustomed lack of fodder, were unable to pull themselves out of the marshes and up the sides of the gullies. To dismount and lead the increasingly panicked animals to drier and higher ground was an open invitation to disaster in the face of the still unbroken enemy cavalry. In Austrian counterattack, fresh men on fresh horses pushed the increasingly disorganized Prussian troopers backward until they drew bridle and rallied behind their own infantry. They took no further part in the day's fighting. End quote. At this point, Brown has managed to check the Prussian advance. But Frederick has been throwing more men against the southern end of the Austrian line, where the Croatian volunteers are doing their best to hold them off from that hilltop. These Croats are guerrilla-type troops who shoot from cover, run, and shoot again. And the Prussians are steadily pushing them back, but they're using a ton of ammo in the process. Basically, every time a Croatian appears, a whole line of Prussian infantry opens fire. So these guys send a message back to headquarters asking for more ammunition because they're using a lot of it and Frederick orders his reserve battalions to hand over half their ammo and sends it forward to the infantry who are fighting the Croatians. Then, for the second time in his career, Frederick the Great flees the field. He hands over command to two of his senior officers and rides a few miles back to the safety of a Prussian-held village. But his subcommanders save the day. Dennis Showalter continues. Quote, the Prussians, bayonets fixed, went forward with the fury of frustration. The Croats were by this time themselves low in ammunition, with many of their officers down. They had earned their pay and more. According to Austrian doctrine, regular troops should have been available to support the light infantry. But no senior officer within reach was willing to take the initiative of marching to the flash of Frederick's bayonets. The Croats stood to the killing for a few minutes, then ran. At the same time, the infantry of the Prussian center followed the route taken earlier by their cavalry down the valley and into the town of Lobositz itself. Two battalions of grenadiers, supported by a few howitzers, forced their way from house to house in a hand-to-hand brawl of musket-butts and bayonets. The Austrian infantry put up a heroic fight, but Brown had never intended to stake his campaign on a single throw of the dice. He had bloodied the Prussians, taught them some manners. It was time to go. The garrison of Lobositz withdrew, covered by the smoke of the burning houses. Brown took personal command of the cavalry rearguard. But the Prussians had had such a near-run thing, and were so disorganized by victory, that from senior officers down to the greenest rear rank private, no one felt the urge to do more than draw a deep breath, give thanks for his own survival, and begin the search for water and for missing comrades. The Battle of Lobositz is a tactical draw. Brown isn't driven from the field. His army withdraws in good order with all their supplies. Both sides lose around 3,000 men, so it's also a draw in the strictly attritional sense. Frederick would even write to his sister Wilhelmina, quote, They weren't the same Austrians. May it please the heavens to grant our valiant armies a stable peace. This must be the aim of this war. But in the strategic sense, in the broader perspective, Lobositz is a huge Prussian victory. Frederick has forced the Austrians to withdraw for the time being and it buys him time to go deal with the Saxons at Pirna, who surrender two weeks later on October 14th. This is huge. He captures 80 cannons along with the entire Saxon treasury. He also conscripts 17,000 Saxon troops into his army, which turns out to be a dumb move later on when they mutiny, but the deed is done. Saxony is bankrupt, which basically means Augustus III is bankrupt, so Saxony and Poland are both all but officially knocked out of the war already. This might seem to put Frederick in a good position, in a war-winning position, in a position to propose terms. But Maria Theresa has other things in mind. In his book, History of the Habsburg Empire, American historian John S.C. Abbott writes, The anger of Maria Theresa at this humiliation of her ally was roused to the highest pitch, and she spent the winter in the most vigorous preparations for the campaign of the spring. She took advantage of religious fanaticism and represented through all the Catholic courts of Europe that there was a league of the two heretical powers— England, and Prussia, against the faithful children of the Church. Jeanette Poisson, marchioness of Pompadour, who now controlled the destinies of France, raised for the service of Maria Theresa an army of 105,000 men, paid all the expenses of 10,000 Bavarian troops, and promised the Queen an annual subsidy of 12 millions of Imperial Florins. The Emperor regarding the invasion of Saxony as an insult to the empire, roused the states of Germany to cooperate with the queen. Europe was again ablaze with war. It was indeed a fearful combination now prepared to make a rush upon the king of Prussia. France had assembled 80,000 men on the Rhine. The Swedes were rallying in great numbers on the frontiers of Pomerania. The Russians had concentrated an army 60,000 strong on the borders of Livonia, and the Queen of Austria had 150,000 men on the march, through Hungary and Bohemia to the frontiers of Silesia. Frederick, with an eagle eye, was watching all these movements, and was employing all his amazing energies to meet the crisis. He resolved to have the advantage of striking the first blow, and adopted the bold measure of marching directly into the heart of the Austrian states. To deceive the Allies, he pretended to be very much frightened, and by breaking down bridges and establishing fortresses seemed intent upon merely presenting a desperate defense behind his ramparts. Suddenly, in three strong, dense columns, Frederick burst into Bohemia and advanced with rapid and resistless strides, towards Prague. The unprepared Austrian bands were driven before these impetuous assailants as chaff is dispersed by the whirlwind. With great precipitation, the Austrian troops from all quarters fled to the city of Prague and rallied beneath its walls. Seventy thousand men were soon collected, strongly entrenched behind the ramparts, thrown up outside the city, from which ramparts, in case of disaster, they could retire behind the walls and into the citadel. The king, with his army, came rushing on like the sweep of the tornado, and plunged as a thunderbolt of war into the camp of the Austrians. For a few hours the battle blazed as if it were a strife of demons, hell and high carnival, 18,000 Prussians were mowed down by the Austrian batteries before the fierce assailants could scale the ramparts. Then, with knife and bayonet, they took a bloody revenge. 8,000 Austrians were speedily weltering in blood. The shriek of the battle penetrated all the dwellings in Prague, appalling every ear, like a wail from the world of woe. The routed Austrians leaving 9,000 prisoners in the hands of Frederick, rushed through the gates into the city, while a storm of shot from the batteries on the walls drove back the pursuing Prussians. Prague, with the broken army thus driven within its walls, now contained 100,000 inhabitants. The city was totally unprepared for a siege. All supplies of food being cut off, the inhabitants were soon reduced to extreme suffering. The queen was exceedingly anxious that the city should hold out until she could hasten to its relief. She succeeded in sending a message to the besieged army by a captain of grenadiers, who contrived to evade the vigilance of the besiegers and to gain entrance to the city. "'I am concerned,' said the empress, "'that so many generals, with so considerable a force, must remain besieged in Prague. But I augur favorably for the event.' I cannot too strongly impress upon your minds that the troops will incur everlasting disgrace should they not affect what the French in the last war performed with far inferior numbers. The honor of the whole nation, as well as that of the imperial aims, is interested in their present behavior. The security of Bohemia, of my other hereditary dominions, and of the German Empire itself, depends upon a gallant defense and the preservation of Prague. The army under the command of marshal dawn is daily strengthening and will soon be in a condition to raise the siege the french are approaching with all diligence the swedes are marching to my assistance in a short space of time affairs will under divine providence wear a better aspect the scene in prague was awful famine strode through all the streets covering the pavements with the emaciate corpses of the dead. An incessant bombardment was kept up from the Prussian batteries, and shot and shell were falling incessantly, by day and by night, in every portion of the city. Conflagrations were continually blazing. There was no possible place of safety. Shells exploded in parlors, in chambers, in cellars, tearing limb from limb and burying the mutilated dead beneath the ruins of their dwellings. The booming of the cannon from the distant batteries was answered by the thunder of the guns from the citadel and the walls, and blended with all this uproar rose the uninterrupted shrieks of the wounded and the dying. The cannonade from the Prussian batteries was so destructive that in a few days one quarter of the entire city was demolished, Count Don, with 60,000 men, was soon advancing rapidly towards Prague. Frederick, leaving a small force to continue the blockade of the city, marched with the remainder of his troops to assail the Austrian general. They soon met, and fought for some hours as fiercely as mortals can fight. The slaughter on both sides was awful. At length, the fortune of war turned in favor of the Austrians— they laid down nine thousand husbands, fathers, sons, and bloody death as the price of the victory. Frederick was almost frantic with grief and rage as he saw his proud battalions melting away before the batteries of the foe. Six times his cavalry charged with the utmost impetuosity, and six times they were as fiercely repulsed. Frederick was finally compelled to withdraw leaving 14,000 of his troops either slain or prisoners. Twenty-two Prussian standards and 43 pieces of artillery were taken by the Austrians. The tidings of this victory elated Maria Theresa almost to delirium. Feasts were given, medals struck, presents given, and the whole empire blazed with illuminations and rang with all the voices of joy. The queen even condescended to call in person upon the Countess Dawn, to congratulate her upon the great victory attained by her husband. She instituted on the occasion a new military order of merit, called the Order of Maria Theresa. Count Dawn and his most illustrious officers were honored with the first positions in this new order of knighthood. The Prussians were compelled to raise the siege of Prague, and to retreat with precipitation. Bohemia was speedily evacuated by the Prussian troops. The queen was now determined to crush Frederick entirely so that he might never rise again. His kingdom was to be taken from him, carved up, and apportioned out between Austria, Sweden, Poland, and Russia. Now, This Prussian defeat that forces them out of Bohemia happens on June 18th, 1757. So, a year into the fighting, while Frederick has managed to knock the Polish and Saxons out of the war, he's at a stalemate against the Austrians in the south. But Frederick has made a lot of enemies, and now they're going to pile on. In August 1757, a Russian army invades East Prussia. This is the homeland of the Prussian aristocracy, isolated from the rest of Brandenburg, Prussia by Poland, as well as some Swedish-held exclaves that are too small to show up on the map. Now, as I mentioned, Frederick has not left this area completely undefended. There is an army of 28,000 men under the command of one Hans von Levalt, but the incoming Russian army outnumbers them by more than two to one. On August 30th, 1757, von Leewald launches a surprise attack on the marching Russians near the town of Grossjägersdorf. Interestingly enough, This is located in what is now part of Russia's Kaliningrad Oblast along the Baltic coast. And von Leyvault is comfortable launching an attack against superior forces because the Russians are overextended. Russia has always struggled with logistics. And so this 55,000-man Russian army is actually foraging off the land and robbing food from local farmers, uh, something that other European armies of the time aren't doing anymore. So it looks like the Russian army is weak, and von Leyvault attacks them. He starts by sending his cavalry against the wings of their army, hoping to drive them off and then surround the main body of the army before they have the chance to form up. This initial cavalry attack appears to be successful, and von Leyvault sends his disciplined infantry in against the Russians in the center to bottle them up and finish them off. But two things go wrong. First, the Russians don't break and run... As von Leyvault had expected, they hold their lines, such as they are, and return fire. And while the Prussians are better drilled, and an individual soldier can fire more shots per minute, the Russians have so many more men that it doesn't matter. The finely drilled Prussians take heavy casualties, And the other thing that goes wrong for the Prussians is that the Russian retreat on their left wing was a ruse. Those retreating Russian troops are Cossacks, and they simply outrun the Prussian cavalry back to a line of artillery far to the rear. And as the Prussian cavalry comes into range, the artillery opens fire and kills a ton of them, and the survivors are forced to draw back to the main Prussian army. And this leaves the Prussian army exposed on that side to a potential Cossack counterattack, which would cause them to become partially surrounded, so von Leyvault does the prudent thing and withdraws with his remaining troops. Now at this point you might be thinking, The Russians have an opportunity to overrun all of East Prussia, which is something Frederick had expected would happen eventually. But the Russians can't follow up on their victory because of their logistical issues. They can forage for food if need be, but they can't forage for musket balls or powder or cannonballs. That stuff needs to be shipped from Russia over dirt roads that turn to mud for half the year, so they have to stop their advance. This happens to Russia several times during the Seven Years' War, and it's something they're never able to fix because it's sort of baked into their geographic location. Then something else happens to the Prussians... Sweden jumps into the war on the Austrian side. One of our quotes already alluded to this. This might sound random, right? Why is Sweden joining a war against Prussia? If anything, this would seem counterintuitive. Sweden is a Protestant country after all, and while religion is less important of a factor in the 1750s than it was in prior centuries... Maria Theresa is making a big deal about this being a war to defend Catholicism in Germany. Why is Protestant Sweden jumping on board? Well, as is often the case, it is a result of Swedish internal politics. See, Sweden at this time has a parliamentary government, and the leading political party, known as the HATS, is itching to regain Swedish international prestige. Remember those Swedish-held exclaves I talked about, the ones on the Baltic coast between East Prussia and the rest of Frederick's territory? Well, Sweden used to have much more territory in the area, but they lost it to Brandenburg, Prussia in 1721. That peace treaty had been approved by a guy named Arvid Horn, who was president of Sweden at the time. His party pursued a pacifist approach to foreign policy that was popular in Sweden at the time. After a century of near-constant war, Horn ditched Sweden's traditional alliance with France and adopted a commercial alliance with Great Britain instead, and really went out of his way to avoid any foreign conflict. Now, Horn's government helps Sweden to develop its economy, which had been devastated by the previous century of war, and Sweden goes from poor to prosperous in a very short period. But in the 1730s, Arvid Horn decides not to join in on the War of Polish Succession, which... Swedish nationalists are able to paint as weakness. All right, here was an opportunity to have some say in regional affairs and horn it back down, and his opponents start calling his party the Nightcaps, which is a reference to their supposed sleepy foreign policy, and this eventually becomes abbreviated to the Caps. And in contrast to the more pacifist caps, the new aggressive nationalist party starts calling themselves the Hats, a reference to the military hat. And in the election of 1738, the Hats win on a platform of restoring the glory of the Swedish empire. Make Sweden great again. And they end up holding power through several elections. In the 1740s, During the War of the Austrian Succession, which we did a couple episodes on, uh, they try going to war with Russia to regain lost territory along the Baltic, but just like the Russians tend to struggle when they are attacking somebody, uh, they tend to do very well when someone attacks them, and largely for the same reason. Russia's a big country, it's really hard to invade, and... After the Swedish invasion fails, they end up losing territory. So this time around, in the Seven Years' War, the Hats are desperate to achieve anything in the realm of foreign policy. They're starting to lose credibility, and they're about to lose an election if they don't follow through on their promises. And they decide that If you can't beat them, join them, and they fight on the same side as the Russians, and this time their goal is to retake that Prussian territory that Arvid Horn had signed away in his peace treaty back in 1721. And the Swedish aren't going into this alone, they get French help. Just as the Prussians are trying to get british financing the swedish are trying to get french financing and they succeed and the hats are even able to deploy their troops without declaring war as required by the swedish constitution they simply send those troops to the few pockets of territory that sweden still owns on the south baltic coast and say that they are peacekeeping forces to protect Swedish territory in Germany due to the ongoing war. And once the troops are deployed and the French financial aid actually arrives, then the Hats call for the Swedish estates to declare war. This is a parliamentary system, but the, the nobility still has to approve a declaration of war, and they do. And... Now, the Swedish invasion force of only 17,000 men, so it's fairly small, but it's already there on the South Baltic coast. And after his defeat at Grossjägersdorf, Prussian General von Leyvoldt doesn't just retreat all the way back to Brandenburg and cede all this territory. Uh, He wheels his army around, away from the Russians, who, remember, are frozen in place, essentially, for lack of supplies, and he bottles the Swedish up in the Swedish Pomeranian capital of Stralsund. And uh, the Swedish will remain there under siege, which is good for the Prussians in the sense that the Swedish aren't taking any territory, but bad for the Prussians in the sense that it ties up von Leyvault's army when it could be really useful further south. And while this is going on, some of Maria Theresa's Hungarian hussars launch a deep raid into Brandenburg. Hussars are light cavalry made to move quickly, uh, mostly for scouting missions, but they are also used for raiding or pursuing retreating infantry, and this Hussar force actually manages to occupy Frederick the Great's capital in Berlin. They leave after only a day, this is a raid in force, not an occupation army, but It's a serious embarrassment for the local military authorities who flee the city and pay a ransom even though their garrison outnumbers the Hungarian raiders three to one. This is yet another headache for Frederick, who is now under heavy pressure from three sides, and he writes to his sister Wilhelmina, "'I can't perform any good at present.'" There are too many enemies. Even if I manage to beat two armies, the third will crush me. The only place Frederick is secure is in the West, which is largely protected by the Electorate of Hanover, which is a possession of Frederick's ally, British King George II. Unfortunately, There is a disconnect between British leadership in Parliament and the military leadership. See, the British government is mostly run by two men at this time. This is the Prime Minister, the Duke of Newcastle, and the Head of Parliament, William Pitt. These guys have had their differences in the past, but in this time of war they have agreed to work together and jointly run the government and they decide not to employ any forces on the European continent. Instead, they want to use the superior Royal Navy to strangle French commerce, then employ their armies against French colonies that the French can no longer resupply. Essentially, they want to win a war on the European continent without raising a large army and incurring a lot of casualties, which would be unpopular with the public. But this clashes with the royal family's position. Britain and Hanover are separate countries. Pitt and Newcastle are only concerned about the British. They are only responsible to the British public, but to George II, things look different. Defending Hanover is critical. Well, Frederick strikes a deal with the British government for them to send ships down the Weser River, which runs uh, near the border between Hanover and France, and to try and cut off French supplies, uh, since the French are indeed marching an army towards Hanover in an effort to roll over Hanover and strike into Prussia. This British uh, river blockade is partially successful, but George II's youngest son, Prince William, Duke of Cumberland, loses a costly land battle while commanding the Hanoverian forces, and Hanover is forced to surrender to the French and accept partial French occupation but George II is able to negate the treaty over a technicality. At the same time, some British members of Parliament see the surrender of Hanover as an injury to British pride. It might not be British territory, but it is the king's territory, and it's humiliating to have to let it go. Furthermore, in the peace treaty, the Duke of Cumberland, the king's son, agreed to the withdrawal of British ships from the Vasa River, which is a violation of Pitt and Newcastle's agreement with the Prussians, and besides which, uh, the Duke of Cumberland has no official standing in the British government outside of being the king's youngest son, and has absolutely no authority to agree to the withdrawal of Royal Navy ships. So everybody, including the king his father, is angry at Cumberland, and after a long and illustrious military career, he retires in disgrace never to play a significant role in British history again. Instead, in October of 1757, the British agree to a reformed Hanoverian army under the command of Ferdinand of Brunswick. Who is Frederick the Great's brother-in-law? This is just one of those excellent examples of how the British and Prussian royal families are linked. But this new Hanoverian army is not yet capable of mounting offensive operations. It's barely capable of posing a deterrent to the French to invading Hanover again. So a French army just goes around Hanover, and in late October, that army joins up with an Austrian army in Saxony. This threatens not only to liberate Saxony from Prussian occupation, but to punch into Frederick's territory in Brandenburg and end him once and for all. And make no mistake, the Prussians should lose this war. They're being attacked on three sides, four sides if you count the Swedish coming from the north, but Frederick is one of the most brilliant military leaders in history, and once again he's going to put on a clinic in strategy and tactics. First things first, this joint French and Austrian army is a major threat. There's no time to wait and Frederick marches to meet it with the troops he has at hand, around 21,000 men. Compare this to the size of the Franco-Austrian invasion force, which numbers around 40,000. But Frederick has built his army around the assumption that he'd usually be outnumbered. It's why he puts so much emphasis on maneuver and drill. He has to do more with less. Frederick puts his 21,000 soldiers through an impressive march. In two weeks, they cross 170 miles to meet their enemies, making more than 10 miles a day with cannons, ammunition, food, and other baggage. And on November 3, 1757, he encounters the French near the town of Rossbach in Saxony. The armies spend the next two days maneuvering for position. But the French commander, the Prince de Soubise, is, to put it kindly, unqualified. He only has his position because of his family's political connections to Madame Pompadour, and he's hesitant to attack an army led by someone with Frederick's reputation. Meanwhile, Frederick is also hesitant to attack, He. Prefers to fight on the defensive in this fight, considering he's so badly outnumbered. Eventually, on November 5th, sub subcommanders convince him to make an attack. The two armies are facing off, with Frederick to the east and the Franco-Austrian force to the west. Sobis has his men break camp and march south in the direction of their nearest supply depot. They hope to fool the Prussians into thinking that they are withdrawing. Then they will wheel around and attack the left flank of the Prussian army from the south. This will roll up Frederick's entire army, starting with the left flank. He'll either have to run out of Saxony with whatever men he can gather from the escape, or he'll have to surrender outright. But Frederick's lookouts spot suvis's armies doing their end around, and Frederick stages a fake withdrawal of his own. In the early afternoon, he orders his men to break camp, then march west as if they're retreating. This soon puts a hill between the Prussians and their advancing enemies, and Frederick's men are able to form up out of sight of the French and Austrians. Frederick Wilhelm, Baron von Seydlitz, is Frederick's cavalry commander. He takes his men even further west to outflank the oncoming French and Austrians. At the same time, Frederick has some cannons deploy on top of the hill and fire at the oncoming French cavalry, who are out in front of the main French army, pursuing what they think is a retreating enemy. And this cannon fire actually deepens the deception here. It fools Soubise he assumes that the Prussians are using the common tactic of using artillery to cover a retreat. The thinking is that artillery is slow and difficult to retreat with, and if you're going to lose your big guns anyway, you might as well use them to give the rest of your army a chance to escape. So, the French cavalry run back out of artillery range to stay safe, but... Subis has his infantry speed up their march to cover the ground more quickly. And instead of moving forward in disciplined, orderly ranks, the men start clumping up as they move forward. And as they round the hill, two things happen. First, Seidlitz, the Prussian cavalry commander, orders his cavalry to charge from a distance of less than a thousand paces. Famously, he sits at the front of his men, watching the French and Austrians get closer and closer, puffing on his pipe. Then he throws the pipe in the air as the signal to charge, and the Prussians charge directly at the still-disordered French cavalry and force them off the field. Immediately after, Frederick's main body of artillery, which is a little bit around to the east side of the hill, well, they open fire on the advancing franco austrian infantry who have now come into range. And they shred through their ranks, doing horrendous damage. Confused troops continue to run forward at the main Prussian position, not yet comprehending that they've fallen into a trap. They think all they need to do is cross that dangerous ground to the artillery Capture it and they'll be ready to continue their pursuit of a fleeing enemy, but they are running into a meat grinder. And at the end of the day, around 5,000 French and Austrians are killed or wounded, with a similar number taken captive. The rest of the army routs in disorder, and the Prussians suffer fewer than 6,000 dead and wounded and the battle instantly spawns some wild patriotic stories amongst the Prussians. According to one legend, a young boy had come to Seydlitz before the battle and asked to join the cavalry. Seydlitz told him no, he was too young, and the boy asked him what he had to do to become a trooper. And Seydlitz told him that he would have to capture a French general. And after the battle, this boy comes to Seydlitz with a French soldier on a leash. And Seydlitz instantly makes him an officer. And while that story probably isn't literally true, it's the kind of story people tell in moments of national crisis. A month later... Frederick repeats this improbable victory at the Battle of Leuthen. With only around 36,000 men, he attacks an Austrian force of 65,000 that had penetrated north into Silesia. Again, he begins with a long forced march, and again he annihilates his enemy inflicting over 22,000 casualties to approximately 6,000 Prussian dead and wounded. After this, he makes camp for the winter. In his book, Frederick the Great, A Life in Deeds and Letters, British writer Giles McDonough writes, quote, Frederick had established a routine in those months of winter camp. He rose at 3 a.m., occasionally earlier, and played the flute for an hour. He then dealt with the business of state until noon. He handled about 40 letters a day. Most of them were nonsense, but I love my people. He invited the abbot to his table at lunch. I ask him questions which he has difficulty answering. After his one daily meal, he wrote poetry and prose to calm his nerves, covering himself from head to foot with Spanish snuff. He went to bed at nine. Writings penned at the time, such as the Sermon sur le jour de jugement, showed that he had forgotten none of his Bible, and that he had not lost his sense of humor either. Quote. Frederick hopes to make peace come spring. The French have been driven back, and a refortified Hanover now sits between Brandenburg, Prussia, and France. Poland and Saxony are down for the count. But Maria Theresa still has her Russian allies, and the Swedish, while on their back foot, are still active in the north. This war is just getting started. In fact, the war is only increasing in intensity. See, the British under Pitt and Newcastle have developed a strategy of attacking French ports, burning ships, and sacking harbor facilities. In the 21st century, we would call these attacks amphibious assaults, but in 1757, the British call them dissents and there are a number of descents uh, most notably on the french port city of rochefort which succeeds in destroying some ships but fails in its objective of taking the city but foul weather and the unpredictable state of french garrisons makes these descents hit or miss by the end of 1757 under pressure from the government William Pitt is forced to send troops to Hanover to aid in the defense, and many soldiers who have taken part in the dissents have become frustrated with their futility and resign and sign new contracts with regiments bound for Germany. Still, the strategy of dissents will continue with limited success through the end of 1758 when an entire British landing force of 1,400 men is cut off from escape and killed or captured to a man during what is supposed to be a minor raid. But in the grand scheme of the war, the British descents are basically a footnote. The really important thing that happens in 1757, one of the most important things that happens in the entire war, is the expansion of the fighting to the Indian subcontinent. Today, in 2022, there are 1.7 billion people on that subcontinent, and most of them live in areas that used to be part of British India. And those people share not just a colonial history, but specifically a British colonial history, which has huge implications for those nations today. I mean, look at India, where English is not an endemic language, and yet it is the language of business. There are... Many, many languages spoken in India, but if you are well-educated and you are in business, you speak English, so you can communicate with other well-educated people who speak English. And why do they speak English instead of some imperial Indian Language dialect? Well, it's because India was under British colonial rule for so long, and all of the elite had to learn English. Well, back in the 1700s, this is by no means a given. Right? The Indian subcontinent is ruled mostly by the Islamic Mughal Empire, although the Maratha Confederacy, a majority Hindu coalition is starting to gain territory on the Deccan Plateau, which is the southwestern part of the subcontinent. The British and French alike are trading in India, but they don't have anything you could really call a colony at this time, right? They're not ruling over local peoples. They have trading posts and some fortified positions, and there uh, are a couple of cities and districts that they rule as part of their trade policies, but all of this is under the subordination of local Indian rulers. It's not accurate to say that uh, the French and British have any colonies whatsoever at this time, and in fact, even if you thought that these settlements were colonies it's debatable whether the French or British governments own them or have any right to dictate their positions. See, these trade posts are owned by the French and British East India companies, although you can be sure that both the French and British crowns profited handsomely from their investments in these companies. No matter how you want to describe it, though, this isn't what we would call colonialism today. It's more like Exxon investing in foreign oil deposits, except these companies are heavily armed and even employ their own war fleets. So imagine if the unthinkable happened and the U.S. and Russia were to go to war And then all of a sudden, mercenary fleets run by Exxon and Gazprom are suddenly shooting at each other in the Arctic with a few military advisors from their respective countries. Well, that is what's about to happen in India between the French and British East India companies. At this time, the British operate three main trading posts in India, Calcutta in the northeast, Madras in the southeast, and Bombay in the northwest. The French have one main trading post at Pondicherry, just south of Madras. Now, the Mughal Empire is failing. It's running on fumes. And so, while most of India is nominally loyal to the emperor... The real power lies in the hands of local governors called Nawabs. And as you might expect, with France and Britain being rivals, they make alliances with rival Nawabs, right? The Mughal Empire has internal politics. Not all of their local governors are friends. Many would gladly stab each other in the back if they have the chance. And... These Nawabs are savvy. They work with the Europeans in exchange for European weapons that they can use to arm their own troops to defend themselves against other Nawabs, or maybe even dominate them. So you have these corporations, the trade companies, going into India with official government backing and often government troops, and trading weapons to different Nawabs throughout the Mughal Empire. And one of these Nawabs, the Nawab of Bengal, changes his mind about the British presence in his territory. So he gathers a force of 50,000 men, and in 1756 he launches a surprise attack on the British Trade Center at Calcutta. The 515 British and Indian soldiers try to put up a defense, but the government officials flee and the soldiers are quickly overwhelmed. 170 survivors are imprisoned overnight in an 18 by 18 foot room with only one window, and all but 23 of them die from lack of oxygen. When word of this reaches Britain... The government dispatches Robert Clive, who you may remember from one of the episodes on the War of the Austrian Succession. Clive got his start during that war by leading a daring expedition against the Indian regional capital of Arcot. Clive is now a lieutenant colonel in the regular British Army, and his initial mission is to rescue the surviving government officials in Bengal. These officials had fled Calcutta, which is about 200 miles inland along the Hooghly River, and they ran to the city of Fulta on the Indian Ocean coast. Clive lands with 900 Europeans and 1,500 local Indian troops called sepoys and rescues the dignitaries. In January, he manages to retake Calcutta itself from unprepared defenders and negotiates a settlement with the Nawab of Bengal, who agrees to pay for damages. But both sides know that this peace isn't going to last. The Nawab, a man named Siraj ud-Daulah, is also friends with the French, and he demands that the two sides not go to war in India. So, Robert Clive enters into secret negotiations with Siraj Udallah's uncle, Mir Jafar, to replace Siraj Udallah and make Mir Jafar the Nawab. And while these negotiations are still ongoing, Clive orders a surprise attack on a French settlement only miles from Siraj Udala's capital. This deliberate provocation causes Udalla to raise a new army and try to drive the British out of Calcutta altogether. And this time he's going to have French help. In his book, 100 Decisive Battles, From Ancient Times to the Present, American historian Paul K. Davis writes, quote, The force bearing down on Calcutta was 60,000 strong including 53 artillery pieces operated by French gunnery crews. Although Fort William was an acceptable defensive position, Clive preferred the offensive. The problem was that he could muster only 3,000 infantry, one-third of them European, and only eight light cannon and two howitzers. Facing 20-to-1 odds seems foolhardy, and even Clive's well-known confidence wavered. But he was assured in secret meetings from Mir Jafar that when the battle started, Jafar would keep his contingent out of the fighting at first, and then join the British side. Banking on that aid, Clive prepared for battle. On the night of June 22nd, he camped in a mango grove alongside the Hooghly, just north of the town of Palasi, better known in its English form as Placay. The next morning the French opened the battle with a massive barrage against the British. It had little effect, however, because Clive had his men positioned on the reverse side of a hill on the edge of the grove. The Indian force was lined up in a huge semicircle almost surrounding the British, with the center of their force commanded by Siraj ud-Daulah's most talented general, Mir Muddin Khan. Clive's artillery was able to inflict more damage on the exposed Indian troops, and most of the morning was spent in an artillery duel. At noon, a monsoon rain began, and the French gunpowder was immediately soaked. Assuming that the same thing had happened to the British, Mudin Khan ordered an attack. Clive, however, remembered the words of an earlier British commander, Oliver Cromwell. "'Trust in God, but keep your powder dry.' Clive had spread covers over his powder supplies, and he was ready for the attack. Charging across open ground, the waves of attacking infantry, including Mir Muddin Khan, were mowed down by the British artillery. The Indian force drew back in confusion. Luckily for the British, Mir Jafar kept his word and withheld 45,000 men from the battle. Seeing the treachery and then learning of Muddin Khan's death, Siraj Udala fled to his capital with a bodyguard of 2,000. He ordered his force to withdraw, but many did not receive the command and continued to fight. Clive fired at the remaining troops one last time with his artillery, and then ordered his men forward. They swept the field of the Indian force and overran the French artillerists. By 1700 hours, the battle was over and the victory was Clive's. End quote. Following the battle, the British would capture Shiraj Abdullah and execute him, and Mir Jafar would become the new Nawab. And as thanks to the British for their help, he would give out massive gifts to major British leaders, and I'm talking serious gifts. Robert Clive, as head of the British Expedition, gets £160,000. And I did my best to convert that to modern money, and it comes out to a little more than $36 million in 2022. And more than that, Mirjafar gives the British East India Company the right to collect rent and taxes in the district surrounding Calcutta. This is worth absurd amounts of money, and the East India Company will instantly become the most powerful player in Bengal, superseding even the Nawab. And over the next several years, with the help of wealthy investors like Clive and others, the East India Company will essentially buy Bengal, thus beginning its slow corporate conquest of India. And this is something we will get back to. Uh, Eventually, I want to do several episodes on British imperial adventures in India, uh, because that's so important to Indian nationalism. But for now, uh, just accept that the shenanigans in Bengal uh, in the 1750s are pretty much emblematic of how the whole affair goes down. So much for 1757. In Europe, the beginning of 1758 brings more bad news for Frederick the Great. He has been enjoying his time in his winter quarters and hoping for an offer of peace. There's even been good news from the West. Ferdinand of Brunswick is successfully leading the Hanoverian army in a winter campaign against the French, and has pursued them completely back across the Rhine. William Pitt has also guaranteed £670,000 in annual subsidies to the Prussians for the remainder of the war. This is a huge sum of money, but... It's barely more than half of the 1.2 million pounds that Parliament is already spending on the army in Hanover, so it's a good investment. And with this funding, Frederick launches an ambitious assault into Moravia, which are the Habsburg lands in modern-day Czechia. And he besieges the city of Olomouc in April, uh, threatening the Habsburg homelands, And again, he thinks that the Austrians are right on the verge of suing for peace. Right, if Frederick can take this city so close to Austria proper, maybe Maria Theresa will agree to negotiate. But unfortunately for him, and the Prussians, and indeed anyone else, who would like to see this awful war just come to an end already, uh, the Austrian army manages to intercept one of Frederick's supply caravans, which cuts off his siege army from crucial food and ammunition, and he's forced to abandon his invasion. But the Austrians have also been weakened by the past year's fighting, and they aren't able to press their advantage and... Launch a counter invasion of Prussian territory, at least not yet. So things remain stable for Frederick in the south. But he's having trouble in the northeast. In January of 1758, a new Russian army under the command of a new leader, uh, Count William Fermer, marched into East Prussia. This new leader is Savvy. And after defeating the token Prussian forces in the province, he oversees as benign an occupation as one can imagine. He goes out of his way to respect the local people and their customs, and not to let his troops abuse them. Now, Frederick had planned on the Russians occupying East Prussia at some time in the war. East Prussia is too far from the rest of Frederick's lands for him to properly defend it, but what he wasn't counting on was this kind of benign occupation. He'd expected the Russians to be cruel and for the Prussian people to resist the occupation, and instead this is a kind occupation and no resistance is forthcoming. Now... Before we talk about Frederick's response, let's talk a little bit about this occupation by Russia of East Prussia. The Russian Empress, Elizabeth Petrovna, says that East Prussia is a prize of war. In other words, she intends to keep that land as compensation for Russia's contribution to the war effort and that becomes controversial pretty quickly. Maria Theresa is trying to use the Russian armies to beat down Frederick, who she sees as a threat to Habsburg hegemony in Central Europe. But if the Russians take over East Prussia, that's not really any benefit to Austria. Maria Theresa would just be replacing one threat to her power with another one and the French and Swedish are also upset about the Russian occupation of East Prussia. See, in addition to financing the Swedish invasion of the Baltic coast, the French had promised the Swedish that they would get to reclaim their lost territory in the area during peace negotiations. But Much of that territory has been incorporated into East Prussia, which the Russians are now claiming, so this causes division between the Allies. And needless to say, Frederick himself feels the need to push back in that area. The Austrian army still needs some time to train new recruits and replenish themselves, and Frederick is hanging by a thread financially. Before the new infusion of British funding, his treasury had been entirely depleted, and even now the money is barely enough to keep the army going, and meanwhile he's starting to run out of men to recruit. So he starts recruiting from his occupied Saxon territories, even using local militias as home guard units so he can use all of his best men on the front and in August, he marches northeast to meet the Russians, who have slowly been advancing west along the Baltic coast, and have now actually penetrated into Frederick's territory in the electorate of Brandenburg. But the Russian occupation is slowly becoming more cruel, as once again, their supply lines get overstretched and they start to live off the land, which typically means stealing grain and livestock from terrified peasants, and as a result, they're starting to face resistance from the locals. Once again, the Russian army is stalling out. On August 25th, 1758, Frederick the Great's army of approximately 36,000 meets Count William Fermer's army of a little over 42,000. And this is one of those fights where Frederick really could have been smarter. See, he has forced marched his men halfway across Germany, making 15 miles a day, in order to strike the Russians as quickly as possible. With Frederick, it's always about speed and maneuver, but Fermer has also forced marched his Russian men to a defensive location of his choosing his army has set up camp near the village of Zorndorf, which is in a swampy, heavily wooded area. He knows the Prussian army is better drilled than his, and he's going to use this terrain to neutralize their advantage and mobility. So as the Prussians are coming in, they know there are Russians in the area. They've seen scouts, and they have reports from local people, but they need an exact location, and they are scouting around, and Frederick is with one of the leading elements of the army, as he tends to be. And they spot the Austrian supply train, virtually undefended. At this point, Frederick could send his cavalry to take or destroy those supplies and force Fermer to either withdraw or attack. Right. He could force Fermor to leave his chosen defensive ground, but Frederick doesn't take the opportunity, probably because he's afraid the Russians will withdraw and he wants to defeat them decisively. When the two armies eventually meet, the Russians are in a defensive position, so Frederick deploys his favorite tactic, which is something called the Oblique Order and it's something he's used a few times in the past. Basically, instead of launching an attack with equal strength across the entire enemy line, his men will line up with a larger number of men on one flank. That flank will then attack the enemy first, causing the corresponding enemy flank to start to fall back. And... As the rest of the Prussian line marches into contact, they're coming into contact with an enemy whose flank has already been turned. So even though those parts of the Prussian line are weaker, the enemy just breaks entirely. And if you're lucky, you can send out cavalry to pursue their survivors. Now, this is an effective tactic, but It relies on men's normal instinct to retreat when they're being attacked head-on by a superior force. And when Frederick's strong flank starts pouring fire into the Russians, the Russians are unable to retreat. There's a swamp behind them, so even after Frederick's cavalry, uh, once again commanded by Seydlitz, drives off the Russian cavalry, there is nowhere for the Russian infantry to retreat to. Sun Tzu says to always leave your enemy a way to escape, and that's the trouble here. The Russians are trapped, and they fight like wild men. And returning to Dennis Showalter's book, quote, About 4 p.m., the Prussian right-wing strode forward for a final try at deciding the battle. Many of these men were Brandenburgers, counted by Frederick among his best troops. They had seen enough of Russian depredations to know that their homes would be next if they failed today. Supported brilliantly by the artillery... They forced the Russians back in hand-to-hand fighting so brutal that musket butts and bayonets gave way to teeth on at least one occasion, when a dying Russian was found savaging a mortally wounded Prussian. However, such close-gripped fighting was by no means every man's taste. As twilight set in and an increasing number of Prussians and Russians alike dropped out of the ranks, some to breathe, others to drink. It seemed that almost every vehicle accompanying the Russian army carried a supply of high-proof alcohol, vodka, schnapps, or brandy. Other opportunities beckoned as well. The 5th Hussars was an East Prussian regiment with a reputation of mustering some of the toughest troopers in Frederick's army. When they stumbled across Russian paymaster's chests, temptation proved too great. The hussars reverted to their origins and began dividing the spoils. By 8:30, the battle was over, halted by exhaustion and confusion as much as by the intentions of generals. The armies drew off to nurse their hurts. These had been considerable. More than 18,000 Russians and almost 13,000 Prussians were dead, wounded, or missing. The combatants had engaged everywhere on the field with a ferocity that shocked even the most case-hardened of Frederick's veterans. Even a shot to the body, noted one participant, was often not enough to bring the Russians down. Another officer, who had fought with Montefoul's task force and had a correspondingly detailed perspective on Zorndorf at the sharp end, "...noted the ferocity still written on the faces of the cavalrymen slain in Sadlet's first charge." Quote. Both armies are traumatized by the intensity of the fighting. The Prussian and Russian armies camp within striking distance from each other for two days. But there's no fighting, not even any minor skirmishes... The men are just too shaken. And on August 27th, the Russian army quietly withdraws back to East Prussia to replenish its supplies. With the situation in the Northeast temporarily stabilized, Frederick turns south again to face the Austrians. Maria Theresa has appointed a new supreme commander, Leopold von Don and he's led a fresh army of 80,000 imperial troops into Saxony, once again attempting to liberate the area from Prussian control. Once more, Frederick makes a lightning march, now with an army of a little under 30,000 men. He sets up camp at the town of Hochkirk, not far away from von Don's army. Von Don doesn't just outnumber Frederick by more than two to one. We've seen that Frederick can beat you, even when he's outnumbered. But Von Don has an ace in the hole. See, Frederick has been paying off Von Don's secretary to feed him information on Austrian war plans. Von Vondon caught the secretary and offered to spare his life in exchange for the secretary acting as a double agent. So, Frederick chooses a terrible defensive position, dangerously close to his large foe, because the secretary tells him that von Vondon is preparing to fight on the defensive. This is even backed up by physical evidence. Frederick's lookouts can see trees being felled in the distance, which they take as evidence that the Austrians are preparing fortifications. But the trees are actually being felled to build new roads through the woods, so the Austrians can move their large army more efficiently. Frederick's officers aren't all convinced. One of his closest confidants, a Scottish exile named James Keith, even says to Frederick, quote, If the Austrian generals let us stay quiet in this position, they deserve to be hanged, End quote. But Frederick is confident in his spy, and his army remains wholly unprepared for an attack, which comes at five in the morning on October 14, 1758. Returning to Giles McDonough's book, quote, The Prussians were literally caught napping. The Austrians cut the ropes of their tents and bayoneted the soldiers through the canvas. One of the first prominent victims was Keith, who was wounded twice before being thrown from his horse by a cannonball in his stomach as he tried to hold on to the Hulkkirk village. He died in the arms of his English sergeant, Tibet. The Austrians fired three salvos from twelve cannons. The Austrians cut a bloody swath through the rest of Frederick's military circle. Elizabeth's youngest brother, Prince Francis of Bevern, was beheaded by a cannonball, and Prince Maurice of Anhalt-Dessau was wounded and captured. Prussian soldiers were packed so close in the so-called Blutgas that they remained standing in death. Under Major Simon von Langen, an understrength battalion continued to hold the churchyard in Hulkkirk even against seven regiments until there was no ammunition left. He died of eleven wounds. At the close of play, Prussian losses were over 9,000, just under a third of the army. Quote. Von quote. does not pursue. He is a cautious general by nature, and allows his men to retire to the comfort of their camp. And the Prussians' discipline, meanwhile, serves them in good stead. Frederick is able to march his surviving army around Saxony, and von Don keeps moving to avoid him. So instead of the Austrians winning the war in one fell swoop, the battle is nothing more than a minor setback for Frederick and in the winter of 1758-1759, Don withdraws to Bohemia to take up winter quarters. So, the Austrians gain literally nothing for their efforts. Regardless, Frederick the Great and Prussia remain surrounded by enemies at the end of 1758, and the situation seems likely to deteriorate in the next year. We've covered a lot of ground in Europe so far, but 1758 has also seen all kinds of developments elsewhere in the world. One of the more overlooked aspects of this war is its expansion into Africa, mostly because it doesn't involve any big impressive battles. But At this time, France owns a number of trading posts along the west coast of Africa in Senegal. These trading posts supply slaves to France's New World colonies, but just as importantly, they're a major source of natural gums such as gum Arabic, things that you need for manufacturing. And an American merchant named Thomas Cummings sails to Britain to meet with William Pitt and suggest an expedition. Pitt approves and dispatches two warships with 200 marines. This force lands at the mouth of the Senegal River, enlists the help of some locals, and marches inward to launch a surprise assault on the French Fort Saint-Louis. The fort has barely more defenders than the British attackers. They are caught entirely by surprise, and they surrender without firing a shot on May 1st, 1758. Thomas Cumming returns to Great Britain with a cargo of gum Arabic worth hundreds of thousands of pounds. And William Pitt is so impressed by this haul that he sends another pair of expeditions, one to the island of Goree, a French-held slave-trading island on the Senegalese coast, and another to a French post on the Gambia River. But Pitt's partner in the government, the Duke of Newcastle, is opposed to the idea of removing additional troops from the British Isles, so Britain limits its African conquest to those few Senegalese trading posts. In North America, meanwhile, we left off with the dismissal of unpopular British commander-in-chief, the Earl of Ludon. William Pitt replaces him with his more popular subordinate, James Abercrombie. We talked about Abercrombie a little bit in the last episode. Uh, he's a logistics expert who's going to oversee William Pitt's war plans for 1758. And To say that these plans are ambitious would be underselling them. In conjunction with Pitt, Abercrombie has developed a plan to neutralize France's control over its North American colonies. Now, we talked last episode about how the French have so far been outplaying the British in the North American colonial game. They control the St. Lawrence River, the Great Lakes, and the Mississippi River. This gives them easy access to the interior of the North American continent and keeps Britain's colonies bottled up on the eastern seaboard. Pitt and Abercrombie's plan is simple. Take the forts that guard the French waterways, and they won't be able to access any of their interior land. To that end, they plan not one, but four assaults for 1758. They're going to attack the French fortress at Louisbourg on Nova Scotia's North Island. This would allow them to threaten any French ships headed England through the St. Lawrence River. Second, they intend to attack Fort Frontenac, which is in modern-day Kingston, Ontario. Fort Frontenac controls the waterway from the St. Lawrence River to Lake Ontario, and controlling it, along with Louisbourg, effectively cuts off Canada from the Atlantic. Indeed, controlling either one of those forts would cut off Canada from the Atlantic. Third, the British intend to attack Fort Duquesne. That's the fort at modern-day Pittsburgh that the French have built to control access to the Ohio River Valley. Finally, the British intend to strike north through New York and strike at Montreal, which is at the time the most populous city in Canada. Now, the first three efforts are successful. In June and July of 1758, joint British and colonial forces besieged the French fort at Louisbourg under the command of Geoffrey Amherst. He is another commander the British have sent to the Americas, and he has a much more aggressive military bearing than his predecessors, which makes him popular with the soldiers. The fortress at Louisbourg would surrender on July 26th, and British forces will spend the rest of the year rooting out dissidents and taking control of the territories now known as New Brunswick, Newfoundland, and Prince Edward Island. On August 26th through 28th, the British have also successfully besieged the French at Fort Frontenac on Lake Ontario. And Since they've already taken Louisbourg and only one of those forts is necessary to control access to the Great Lakes, the site is viewed as superfluous, so they burn Fort Frontenac to the ground rather than waste men on garrison duty the situation with Fort Duquesne is a little bit more complex. The French actually repulse a British attack on the fort in September with the help of their Native American allies, so the British efforts look like a failure at first. However, the British force called the Forbes Expedition remains in the area The French have only been successful in North America so far because of their many Native American allies. Remember, the British colonists vastly outnumber the French colonists. And other than the Iroquois nations, most of the Native Americans are outright hostile to the British. And when they are not fighting alongside French forces, they are launching raids against British colonial settlements. Well, In October, representatives of 13 Indian nations, including the Iroquois nations, meet in Easton, Pennsylvania with the royal governors of Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Over the course of a week, these delegates negotiate what comes to be called the Treaty of Easton. The negotiations are complex, but the long and short of it is this. The Native Americans will agree not to fight on the side of the French and to stop raiding British settlements. They will also give up all claims to land east of the Allegheny Mountains. In return, Pennsylvania will return some lands they have recently purchased and New Jersey will pay restitution for land they have taken from the Lenape Indians. Most importantly, The British colonies will give up all claims west of the Allegheny Mountains, and they promise not to build any new settlements there. This peace with the Native Americans frees up tremendous British resources. I should say peace with many Native Americans. There are a lot of tribes, and many are still friends of the French, but nonetheless, it does free up British resources along the western frontier since they can reduce their guard to a bare minimum. Anyway, the French abandon Fort Duquesne when they find out about this treaty. There's no way they can hope to hold it without help from their Native American allies, so they burn the place down. And when British soldiers arrive, among them George Washington, all they find is a smoking ruin. They will build a new fort nearby named Fort Pitt in honor of William Pitt, and the city that grows up around it will be named Pittsburgh. So, three of the British military efforts in 1758 will be successful. But the fourth effort, a strike north to Montreal at the very heart of Canada, well, that effort is something altogether different. As you may recall, the route from New York to Montreal lies over water. You take the Hudson River north past Albany, then carry your boats overland across a portage trail a few miles to Lake George. Paddle north a few more miles and you'll find some rapids which open onto Lake Champlain. This is a long, skinny lake and if you take your boats to the north end of it, you won't have far to go overland before you reach Montreal. But guarding the rapids from Lake George to Lake Champlain is the fort the French call Carry On, which the British call Ticonderoga. James Abercrombie plans to lead this attack himself, but being a logistics guy, his preparations are slow and plodding, and his attack gets held up numerous times despite his colonial officers begging to take the initiative. Remember Sir William Johnson, the Irish Iroquois chief? He leads part of the attack, and he's disgusted with Abercrombie's ineptitude. John Bradstreet, another seasoned colonial officer, is also frustrated with Abercrombie's slow pace. By comparison, uh, Louis-Joseph de Montcalm, the French commander, is seasoned at colonial warfare and has the respect of his troops and officers alike. In his book, Empire of Fortune, Crowns, Colonies, and Tribes, in the Seven Years' War in America, American historian Francis Jennings writes of Abercrombie's attack, quote, Commanded by Pitt to campaign against the French forts, He moved a large army of 16,000 men early in July 1758 into position before Fort Carrion, called Ticonderoga by the British, sending Bradstreet ahead with the vanguard. Bradstreet displayed his usual efficiency by overpowering the outer defenses and urgently requesting permission to attack the fort before the French could call up reinforcements. Permission was denied because Abercrombie wanted to bring up the main body of his troops. Grateful Montcalm poured men into the fort from nearby Fort St. Frederick, and used the day of respite to construct entrenchments and outerwork fascines of fallen trees with branches stabbing outwards towards attackers, a predecessor of the barbed wire of World War I. These defenses were vulnerable to artillery fire from a height called Mount Defiance, But Abercrombie sent Johnson and his Indians to that height instead of planting there the artillery already at hand. Compounding his mistake, he suddenly became impetuous at exactly the wrong moment. Instead of waiting one more day for the rest of his artillery to come up, with which he could have blasted easily through the French lines and forced Montcalm to evacuate the fort, Montcalm had readied his troops for retreat, Abercrombie launched his regulars against the defense lines in a succession of bayonet charges. End quote. Needless to say, this does not go well for the British. American historian William M. Fowler, Jr. writes about it in his book, Empires at War, The French and Indian War, and the Struggle for North America, 1754-1763. And like many authors, he sprinkles in a little French, but even for listeners who only speak English, the snatches should be easy to decipher, I hope. He writes, quote, At about ten, skirmishers emerged from the wood line and advanced. Behind them, the provincials and regulars formed up. But within a few steps, the fallen trees and branches broke the advancing rhythm. Men burdened with heavy packs and weapons stumbled, fell, and struggled to get up. In the center, Colonel William Haviland's regulars were following close behind advancing provincials. Hearing firing on his left, Haviland, who could not see what was a-doing, mistakenly concluded that the general assault had begun. HE ORDERED THE PROVINCIALS TO MAKE WAY AND FALL DOWN SO THAT HIS BRIGADE MIGHT MARCH THROUGH AND STORM THE FRENCH BREASTWORK BY FRONTAL ASSAULT. IT WAS A TRAGIC ERROR. HAVILAND'S MEN ADVANCED WITHOUT SUPPORT AND FELL LIKE pigeons. ALL ALONG THE FRONT, COMMAND AND CONTROL ON THE BRITISH SIDE COLLAPSED. SOME SOLDIERS STOOD AND ADVANCED, WHILE OTHERS COWERED BEHIND STUMPS AND FALLEN TREES. Montcalm had detailed his best marksmen to the front, and assigned the less skilled to reload and pass muskets forward. The French poured a blizzard of shot at the regulars, firing at a rate three to five times that of the British, and with much greater accuracy. In this carnage, no regiment suffered so much as the Highlanders. Recruited out of the rugged north country of Scotland— The Highlanders were both feared and admired for their legendary prowess as warriors. With Abercrombie was the Senior Highland Regiment, the 42nd Black Watch. Luton had once remarked that the Black Watch were remarkably fearsome. Even his own native allies viewed them, as he said, as a kind of Indians. Abercrombie posted the 42nd to the left to face the French right, in the sector held by the regiments of Guyenne and Bayarn. Having come into the confused battle late, the Highlanders rushed to take up their position. We marched up and attacked the trenches, and got within twenty paces of them, and had as hot a fire for about three hours as possible could be. We all the time seeing but their hats and the end of their muskets, reported Captain John Murray. The French defenders were hard-pressed as the Highlanders returned unceasingly to the attack. Some of the Black Watch leapt on top of the French works, where they appeared like roaring lions breaking from their chains. It was a courageous but sad day for the regiment. Like the rest of Abercrombie's army, the Scots were driven back, but not before they had taken devastating losses. By seven in the evening... Nearly all of the regulars who could still walk had retreated back behind a line held by the provincials. The French, too, had suffered heavy casualties, but had nonetheless won a glorious victory. Within a few days, Montcalm dispatched Bougainville to Paris with the news. Yet even in jubilation, the Marquis remained ungenerous towards the Canadians. He disparaged their role in his triumph, and condemned them for allegedly cowardly behavior. Weeks later, as he mused over the situation in Canada, he plunged deeper into gloom. According to the Marquis, the grand society in which Intendant Bigot was a central figure absorbed tous les commerces. The country was in dire straits. L'agriculture languit, la population diminue, les guerres serviennent his close friend Bougainville summed it up well when he wrote to his wife, Can we hope for another miracle to save us? I trust in God. He fought for us on the 8th of July. Although Abercrombie's army still outnumbered the French, it was, in the words of a Rhode Island militia officer, a confused rabble. As dispirited and demoralized as his troops Abercrombie was scorned by his own men. New Englanders called him Mrs. Nabby Crombie, while Johnson's Iroquois taunted him as an old squaw that should wear a petticoat. Abercrombie ordered a general retreat. The day after the debacle, the once-proud army returned to their boats and rowed dispiritedly back to William Henry. End quote. After this kind of embarrassing failure, there is no way that Abercrombie can remain in charge of the colonies. Even if his mistakes are understandable and the other British efforts in North America were successful, he has lost the confidence of the colonials as well as that of his own British troops. So once again, William Pitt appoints a new commander-in-chief for North America, Jeffrey Amherst, who had successfully led the siege of Louisbourg. He's aggressive, he is a real soldier's soldier, and once again the British colonists in North America cheer for their new leader. Abercrombie isn't the only person to get replaced at the end of 1758. See, the French Minister for Foreign Affairs, Cardinal de Bernays, has only been in power for about a year. But he's actually pretty good at his job, and he starts questioning the Madame de Pompadour's lavish personal spending on parties, clothes, and other non-wartime expenses. And it seems that he digs a little too deep because she manages to get him fired and replaced with one of her friends, Etienne-Francois, the Duc de Chaussuay doesn't pay to annoy the king's mistress, and it's good to be her friend. But Chosuay isn't just a friend of Madame de Pompadour's. He also has his own views on French foreign policy, and he's sick of spending all kinds of effort on the North American colonies. The British clearly have the upper hand there, and thanks to British naval supremacy, it is tough to move men and supplies to New France. Instead, Chosuay wants to conserve France's naval resources and attempt an invasion of Great Britain itself in 1759. He also wants to spend more men and money on the war in Hanover. France has been fighting with Hanover on equal terms so far, and it's thought that with just a little extra effort, a little more manpower, a little bit more push... They can conquer Hanover altogether. Now, this isn't to say that de Chaussuet intends to abandon New France. Instead, he intends to win the war in Europe. The British monarchy is deeply attached to Hanover, and if France can conquer that, they can use it as a bargaining chip to regain any lost colonial territory during peace negotiations. I never mind what they can bargain for if an invasion of Britain is even partially successful. Well, this is what you do... When you're on your back foot in a conflict, you look at what we're doing wrong and you look at what we can change to do better. Meanwhile, William Pitt and the British have been winning. Their strategies are working, so they're going to keep doing what they've been doing and keep on fighting throughout the globe and strangling French trade. In Central Europe... Frederick the Great and Maria Theresa continue their struggle for supremacy in Germany. And to the east, Elizabeth Petrovna's Russian troops prepare for their next move. It's the end of 1758, and the Seven Years' War is only two years old. We'll talk about the next phase of the conflict in Part 3 of World War Zero. Hello again. It's me, Dan. This is a friendly reminder that if you're only listening to the audio podcast, you're not getting all of my content. I also have a Patreon channel called Dan's War College. Each month, I break down a historical battle, weapon, or tactic and explain how it works. This is a video series with maps, graphics, and other helpful visual aids, and you can get it all for just $5 a month. We've done 10 episodes so far, and some of these have even been patron requests, because I do take requests. You can find the link to the Patreon channel in the episode description. And if you're on the fence, episode 5 of Dan's War College is currently publicly available, so you can check that one out and get a taste for what the channel is like. Of course, not everybody wants to spend $5 a month for a monthly video, and who can blame you? There are so many channels and subscription services out there that it's just impossible to sign up for all of them. But if you still want to support the show, you can share it with your friends or post a link on social media. Shows like this grow by word of mouth. And if the channel's growth is any indication, you guys are great advertisers. Thanks so much, and please keep it up. And if your podcast service lets you leave a review, please do so. If you want to follow Relevant History on social media, you can find links in the description for that as well or just go to Twitter and find at Dan Toler Podcast. That's Dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast. If you want to send me an email, you can write to Dan Tolerpodcast at gmail.com. That's Dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast at gmail.com. Tell me what you liked, or if you think I got something wrong, tell me that too you can also visit the show's website at com. once again that's dan t o l e r podcast.com thanks for listening